Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey. First time ever talking about two books. Double feature. Double feature. Uh, (laughs) Michael Bungay Stanier, who has now styled himself MBS because his name is a mouthful and he's just accepted the fact that it's a mouthful and now he's branded himself MBS, uh, which is much easier to say. But these two books, The Coaching Habit, subtitled Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever, and The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever, go together in some ways. And I think it's kind of neat to talk about them together, Uh, particularly because The Coaching Habit is one of the books I find myself recommending over and over and over again. I'm curious whether it's an experience that you have, like whether this is one of the ones that you recommend or whether this is one of these ones that you're like, yeah, it's useful for some people, but it's not one of mine. Oh, I definitely recommend it. I remember seeing it at an airport when it first came out, you know, when you're waiting for your flight Mm -hmm. and you're looking at the bookstore and just kind of flipping through it and thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this articulates things that are always swirling in my head that I can't seem to necessarily explain to people in a really easy to grasp way. And so I do recommend it because I think it does walk people through a process and does it in a way that doesn't make it this big mysterious thing. Just gives some really straightforward how-tos and kind of says, just try it and see what happens and says it's simple but not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, in a lot of ways, the, the way the book is structured, it provides a script for lack of a better way of putting it of questions to ask. It doesn't get lost in coaching theory too much. There is coaching theory in there, of course, as to why these work and um, how they're supported by research and things, which is great. But I think it gets right into the actual questions to ask and what to say if you're met with this type of resistance in yourself or in the other person. And in that way, it's super accessible to people who hear the word coaching and think, yeah, I probably know how to do that, but I'm not a professional coach or I don't know if I'm very good at it. Anyone who's kind of feeling in that maybe apprehensive space, it just gets you right into the behaviors. And I like that a lot because there are a lot of coaching books out there. And as certified coaches ourselves, I'm sure we've read a ton of them. (laughs) And not all of them are quite this practical and accessible to lead who are either new to coaching or or just maybe less experienced with coaching. That's very much why I recommend it. Between you, you nailed the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this question. It's really accessible. And the seven questions that he lays out are a coaching arc. They're a coaching conversation from beginning. And, and it's just enough theory there's a reason behind this. It's not just that I'm telling you to do this. So anybody who needs that, there's just enough to give you a taste of it. I need the theory in order to be willing to try things. And so if there's not enough theory, I'm like, why are you telling me this? I don't have a reason to believe that this is going to work. And so I like the balance in this book. I recommended this to a client this week. And we're in the part of the coaching arc where they're starting to recognize that I have patterns of things that I do. And they're starting to see that there are patterns, but they haven't yet articulated what those patterns are. So they're not yet 
self-coaching outside the session, but they're getting pretty close. Mm-hmm. And we had actually had a conversation about that. And I could tell that sort of the desire to be better at self-coaching was there. And so one of the things that I did was I said, there's this book you can read that actually talks you through what I do. And so if you want help grasping what I do, this book is a useful way of doing it. Yeah, I actually read somewhere online and I can't remember the person's name, someone talking about this book and saying it actually helped them journal. Because one of the things we've talked about on this podcast is how um, a lot of different leadership frameworks and coaching recommend journaling um, and, and mindfulness exercises also incorporate journaling very often. And I've said before that I'm not much of a journaler. It's, it's, it's not quite my thing. And, and, and the unstructured nature of it is one of the reasons for that. And I think the on self-coaching, Kate, the questions in this book can, can actually help structure journaling too. If, if that's, you know, um, uh, that's one thing people want to do to really help themselves or build that muscle in themselves to be able to, to answer these questions and, and, and meaningfully move forward without getting stuck in a loop. I really like that, that idea of just asking yourself those two questions, what's the real challenge and what else and what else? So what's the real challenge? That idea that you can ask yourself those questions and do some reflection on that and what you can, what you can self-coach to use your terminology from that. I don't tend to go to the paper and pencil place, but I do actually suggest that people ask these questions when they're in settings. So now it feels like the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a book. It's coaching. We have spent a lot of time training as coaches and a lot of time developing as coaches. So what do we say to people who think I can learn coaching from a book? Well, the way I look at it is that this is almost a Kickstarter guide for coaching. It's never going to be the end all because I don't think any book is, as we probably learned through doing season one of this podcast, there's always more to be learned. Taking myself, for example, as you said, we're all certified as coaches. We've been through, in some cases, multiple coaching programs. And in this book, as well as in the advice trap, which we're going to talk about next, I found myself learning new things, even though I've been coaching for years. And I think that's because, as we said earlier, it is so practical, but it gets at the root of coaching. For experienced coaches, it almost sharpens our skills a little by getting us to the fundamentals. And for people who are totally new, it's a way to dive right in without thinking too much. And what's that saying? If you want to be, do. (laughs) If you want to be better at coaching or be more of a manager coach or a leader coach, just start doing it. And so I, I wouldn't expect someone to read this book or even the combination of these books and be a master. But I do expect that it would increase their confidence and their skill a a fair bit because it certainly has for me. I think there's times where coaching can be presented as something that can come off as intimidating. And so sometimes when you come in and you are an accredited coach and then you're trying to teach coaching to managers, I like making a distinction between becoming this coach the way ICF sees it and learning coaching skills and integrating coaching skills into the way you lead so that it takes down what some people might see as a, as a boundary of mm-hmm. 
the feeling like if I'm going to be a good coach or if I'm going to be a real coach, I need to go through, you know, a year long certification course and a way for people to just put in that idea of stop telling people what to do all the time. See what happens when you ask more questions. We're not saying you have to go through months of training and practicums and observations and supervision and all of that. Here's a way to integrate some coaching skills into the way you lead. Yeah. He says early in the book, I'm not trying to turn you into a coach. I'm mm-hmm. trying to give you some tools for being more coach-like. The other thing is that a really skilled coach, if you don't know what you're looking for when you look at a coach, it kind of looks magical. I remember the first time I watched a coach demonstration from a master coach, I was just like, I don't think you did anything, but they had like <laughs> this massive insight and this massive like turnaround. And then then over time, we learned to break down and to see what it was that was so masterful. This goes straight from the opposite end. This goes from here's how to be clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing is that being a little bit more coach-like has tremendous impact. Part of the argument that he's making in the books is just do a little bit less talking and a little bit more asking. Yeah. The distinction between being a coach and having coaching skills, I think is enormous. And it kind of gets to the difference between the coaching habit and the advice trap. What is the difference between the two books? Well, I don't know if we're, we're voting here, but I'm going to go ahead and vote. <laughs> go ahead I, and vote. We're, uh, Nithya, we're voting, we're judging, we're yes, telling. Yes, we are. Yeah, we all of it. Read the book, so we're not making assumptions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, here, here I am giving people advice in saying uh, I I loved the advice trap. I mean, the coaching habit is the is the foundational book, absolutely. The advice trap I loved, and I think it's because it double clicks on that tendency we have to tell that is so deeply ingrained. You know, we want to feel like we matter. We want to feel like we're adding value and we're contributing. We're deeply uncomfortable with silence and just letting people be as they figure it out. There's so much discomfort that fuels, I think, advice giving is something I learned in this book and how advice giving when we do it and when we, especially when we overdo it is more about making us feel comfortable. <laughs> and, and I think that's why it doesn't add nearly as much value as true coaching. But as, as you said earlier, it's not an either or it's not never give advice. I think um, one of the phrases used in one or both of the books, they're, they're slightly melding together in my head. But one of the phrases used is that advice giving is an overused muscle. Mm-hmm. We're so accustomed to doing it that it's almost automatic. Whereas coaching and asking rather than telling is either a totally new muscle or, or, or definitely an underused one, I think in most, most of us. And by the way, it's an underused muscle, even for trained coaches. Like I, I think that's, it's worth pointing out that even those of us who are experienced with it, it is still constantly a reminder to ourselves to say like, how can I get to curiosity here rather than solving? And that's why I think it's a habit to form and not something that you can just read a book and master. That's the difference between being a good coach and a great coach is the good coach is able to tame the advice monster in a few situations. Right. And a great coach is able to tame the advice monster in more situations, or at least that's one of the distinctions between a good coach and a great coach. Yeah. Agreed. 
I love the way the advice monster lays out just the premise, because I know that we've all seen this in organizations where people are promoted because they excel at being an individual contributor. So when they're promoted, it just makes logical sense that their job is now to help other people succeed the way they succeeded. And what we really want people to adopt is more of just stopping that sentence. Their job is now to help others succeed. Right. Full stop. Not necessarily the way you succeeded, but it's what we know and we do want to be helpful. And so that's our first instinct is to say, well, I did this, try this. So first, it's just a shift of mindset in terms of how do you help people become successful? And I just really like the way he lays that out in terms of where it comes from and why we should fight that instinct. Yeah. Can we unpack the advice monster a second? Because I loved the the three ways in which it shows up. I think it would be fun to talk about that. All right. Take us in. <laughs> yeah. So the advice monster, the way MBS writes it, shows up in, in a couple different ways. So one way is the tell it. The tell it version of the advice monster is kind of the one we've been talking about, which is the one that likes to be heard, <laughs> likes to be known and seen, uh, generally uncomfortable with silence and really valuing contribution in terms of how much is said. And I think we see this even outside of the advice context. If any of you have ever sat in a meeting, I've probably sat in 10,000 of these <laughs> Where, where there are people talking and uh, it's unclear whether what's being said is actually furthering the discussion, but we just feel like something needs to be said. <laughs> I think that's the tell it monster, I guess. Or the, I need to show that I know what's going on. And exactly. if I don't verbalize it, <laughs> no one will know that. No one will know or believe that I know things. Yeah, exactly. Right? I'm, if I'm not talking, clearly I don't know what's going on. I'm probably not smart. Why am I in the room at all? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. We also have the save it. Um, So the save it tendency of the advice monster. This one's really interesting. And I think it kind of speaks to coaching as a healing profession, in a sense, which is that especially when we see someone who's having a hard time, they're struggling with something, they're really facing a, a challenge that's been keeping them up at night, whatever the situation is, we want to feel useful. And sometimes the form that that takes is let me save this person, right? Let me save them emotionally, let me make them feel good or feel better. Let me be the one that rescues them from this situation. And it's funny because it's a noble intention, sort of, (laughs) or at least an understandable one. But the impact as MBS lays out is that, you know, we're creating victims in a sense, furthering that rescue or victim dynamic, which actually isn't helpful at all. And it's not empowering, certainly in any way. That one is one that is so clearly like, it's the one that parents get into all the time. Because your job as a parent, you begin as actually your job is to make sure that your child doesn't die. And so the save it is part of your job. Yeah. And as the child becomes more and more capable of doing things, you actually have to let them take risks. You actually have to let them learn on their own because you otherwise you just put them in bubble wrap for the rest of their lives. And (laughs) that doesn't work. And so it's so hard. And then of course, we as children are raised by people who are struggling with that transition. And many of them don't let go as soon as 
since they could. Right. And so it's been modeled for us to save and to keep trying to save. And it, it's more than it, it comes out of love. And so we connect love with save. Right. Whereas, you know, paradoxically, maybe love equals let go or empower or lift up. Right. Um, right. Or both of them. Like it's like save when it's absolutely necessary. Right. Right. And let go the rest of the time. Yeah. Be selective. And, in that. Right. And that yeah. line is so fine. Yeah. So that's two of the three versions of the advice monster the other one is control control it that piece of like when you're in a space of there's chaos and people are struggling and like let's put some guardrails in and let's define the problem and let's actually sort of get rid of that chaos and that messiness so that nobody has to suffer especially not me (laughs) which is of course the piece (laughs) that you were pointing at about these things come out because they're making us comfortable the thing I love about the tripart advice monster is that it's manageable there are are so many nuances about how these variations can show up if you start looking at yourself in life and see when they show up there's so many nuances that to have a three-part structure to look at gives you enough to actually go okay now I can name some things without feeling overwhelmed by it at least that's my experience can you just say more about the three-part structure are you talking about what we just talked about yeah what we just talked about the the three types of monsters the tell it the save it the control it got it the other one that helped me a lot in in terms of the simplicity of structure was the Terra structure. I really liked that. That may have been in the coaching habit, <laughs> but it has to do with this notion of how to kind of how to how to hold the other person in a sense, you know, because when we think about the trap of advice that we get into and this need to solve or the need to save, at the end of the day, it boils down to how do you hold the other person? I know that in the coach training that the three of us went through, they use language like hold the other person as naturally creative resource resourceful and whole, which is to say, treat the other person like they're an adult <laughs> and not and not someone who needs that saving or controlling, right? But in MBS's words, he uses the, the Terra framework, which I really like. And it's actually for anyone who's familiar with David Rock's work in neuroleadership, I found it pretty similar to the SCARF model. I don't know if that resonated for, for either of you. And really both of these models, whether you like Terra or SCARF, and you can look those up, I think have to do with what is the coachee or your, your director report or whoever it is that you're working with, what are their basic needs and how do you cater to those needs while still treating them like an adult, basically, right? How do you help them feel secure while also not coddling them? (laughs) How do you, you know, kind of maintain your credibility while also not putting yourself above them in rank or status? So anyway, I really liked those, those models. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can talk about those a little bit. Yeah, I like them too. I think to your point, Nithya, it's about creating an environment where it's safe to feel uncomfortable where it's safe to not know. And, you know, he gives us Tara, you talk about David Rock's scarf and just this idea of what does it mean to take care of someone's basic psychological safety Mm -hmm. in a situation that then you're creating this arena for them to discover what's the real challenge and to be able to be open to making those discoveries without feeling like it's going to be held against them. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, at the end of the day, what MBS says our coaches really want is they want to feel like you're in their tribe. That's the T. We are on the same team. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're okay here, right? They want to know what to expect. That's the E. I think the skill there is let them know what's coming. Let them know, like show your cards a little bit, right? Don't have this mysterious coach persona. <laughs> and uh, I think I, I think that one in particular expectation, I, I really like because it sort of provides a roadmap for a coaching conversation. It's not like you have to know exactly what's coming, but it does mean that, you know, you can say, Hey, um, it seems like we're a little bit stuck here. I'm thinking maybe we take a second to pause and then we'll return to topic X, right? It's just that kind of open transparency in the conversation that I really like. The other ones here rank on under the Terra. This is a big one for me. And it's not because I'm, you know, <laughs> it's not literally rank, like I'm above you in rank, but I think when leaders are trying to coach, they may fall a little bit into the, you know, we're back to the saving and the solving, right? I have expertise and I am here to fix your problem and I have the answers. And so let me provide those for you. You know, perhaps counterintuitively when coaching, one thing I learned from this book is that it's really important to kind of take yourself down a notch. <laughs> the learning I got around like, don't use language that presumes that you know stuff, like use language that invites them in and come from that place of humility and, and curiosity, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think on that same topic, something that can be just really simple is a lot of times we think about the idea that when we have been in physical places and people come in to your office, the idea of them sitting in front of you at a desk, the fact that you can shift the conversation a little by taking away that barrier of the desk yeah. in between yeah. so that it's less about someone asking someone they see as superior to them for advice and more about two people having a conversation about what's the best way forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other physical thing that I do in spaces is I'm tall. And if I'm working with somebody who's not to actually sit down so that we're closer in height together has an impact. It does. Yeah. I don't have that problem. <laughs> Well, it's funny because Alyssa, you mentioned the in-person thing. In some ways, I suppose video is the great equalizer in this specific sense. It's 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 not in other ways, but in this sense of, I think, rank, there is a sort of, well, we're all on a screen and we're all just trying to make this work. So it does, I think, help in that area, although it detracts in other areas, of course. Yeah. It's also why phone coaching is so effective mm. is because everybody's in their own space. That's true. That's true. And it's slightly different, like on video. Video, yes, we're all in our own space, but we're also sort of giving away information about our spaces that might have rank implications, like, you know, what's in the background right. in work from home. It matters, you know, if the if the C-suite person has really expensive artwork in their office and you see it on screen and you have sort of scrambled around to sneak into like a little bit of a bedroom because you're in a crowded space, right? Like that reinforces it. Right, right. So the phone is really an equalizer because like I'm not seeing your space. I'm just in my space. It's such a great provocation, you know, for, for, I think leaders who are listening and want to try this out, like try it out without, try it with video if you want, right. And try it without video and try the phone and, and see what difference that makes. Um, 
Cause I've, I've definitely heard, yeah, from other coaches that, that, that helps. And it also kind of helps you focus. Right. And because also with the video up, you know, especially in a work setting, we get into like, like email is still up and chat is still up. And I don't know, there's just a million other distractions. Whereas I think without that video, you can really focus on that asking and the, and the, the curiosity. There's certainly a different options in the different settings and it's worth playing with to see what impact it has. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And just to close out uh, Tara here that a, in the TERA's autonomy. And we've kind of already been talking about it, but you know, we're, we're coaching folks, but it's, it's up to them at the end of the day. And I think putting things in other people's hands and, and trusting that they're, they're going to have the answer and that they're going to be able to drive this is, um, well, it's simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> right. I mean, that's so true. The thing that I'm thinking about right now is the kinds of frameworks that work for different people. There's enough in the way MBS presents these things for people to pull different bits and pieces. You took the acronym and the acronym works for you. I never remember acronyms. <laughs> I find them totally not useful. Except for they MBS. Can... <laughs> well, that's because it needs to be. for summing up these complex things mm. my brain needs a different kind of handhold the handhold that I got in the kind of relationship piece here was empathy mindfulness and humility um, but actually that's not what I hang on to what I actually hang on to is the questions that are yeah. his definition of empathy mindfulness and humility because empathy is what's real about the other person mindfulness is what's real about the situation and humility is what's real about me, including all of my complex humanity and my weaknesses and my flaws and the fact that I really want to be helpful. And so I'm going to get on my own way because I'm going to tell you what to do too much because. Mm -hmm. And so for me, those questions and that drive for to get to giving advice less, I will do better if I keep trying to stretch into what's real about the other person, what's real about the situation, what's real about me. Mm, love that. His questions actually root us in that too, Kate. Like, I think this is what you're alluding to, right? What's on your mind? What else? You know, what's the real challenge here? I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the last one he says is, if you're going to say yes to this, what are you going to say no to? Is that right? I wanted to bring that up. It's not the very last one, but it's- Okay, yeah. That one, I think, is a real eye-opener for a lot of people. We don't, even if we work on making that shift from telling to asking, we can figure out, okay, so, you know, so what do you want and what do you want to do? And then Mm -hmm. kind of moving to action and putting in that piece of saying yes to this means saying no to what I think puts a really useful frame on things. Nithya, what were you going to say more about it? I was going to say that it, yeah, I totally agree with you that it's, it's much more useful And it's pragmatic because we only have 24 hours in a day. As much as there are books out there, there are like stretch your 24 hours to 48 hours and all kinds of stuff around that, right? But (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's that's where I was going to go. It's such a practical (laughs) counter to places where I think coaches get a bad reputation because so much of the coaches marketing themselves is like unblock yourself and the limitless you and they're like, it's like, no, actually... Right. There are, there are limitations that just have to do with 
we are busy people, busy adults with lives and jobs and families and, and other commitments. And I think this, what will you say no to is the thing that distinguishes, you know, really effective coaching from just like giving people homework. At the end of the day, I think this stuff shouldn't feel like I just got a ton of stuff to do from my coach or my manager, right? Because that's... <laughs> It, it's it's not really the right energy you want to create. You want to create the sense of like, wow, I'm prioritizing the right things now, right? Or I'm investing in myself in this way, or I'm honoring one of my values versus I have a bunch of stuff to do now. Yeah. The values piece is so important. I talk about this a lot when I do leadership training is the, the place where values get really, really hard is when prioritizing this value requires saying no to that mm -hmm. value. This question, if you do this, what are you saying no to, often brings that to the surface because the, I don't actually want to say no to anything is because these <laughs> other things are things that I value. And so there has, there's a, a conscious choice about which do I value more that is often triggered by the question, if you're going to do this, what are you going to say yes to this? What are you going to say no to? And it's a very, very powerful and sometimes very challenging question. I referred earlier to the easy change, hard change distinction. I think that this question often sort of gets to why is this hard change? I loved the conversation about easy change and hard change. I had never had such a clear articulation of the difference between easy change and hard change, which is funny because it's such a simple set of language, but the easy change is the tinkering around with present you, your present sense of identity, your present world, like tinkering around with what do you do differently. And the hard change is the, what if I actually have to change things about me that I attach to my identity right. in order to accomplish this goal that I have. As soon as it gets tapped into that sense of who I am that needs to change, all of a sudden it gets really, really hard. It's true because it comes down to, oh, my values have changed or it comes down to, I thought I was being helpful by giving advice and now I'm discovering that I haven't been helpful in right. the ways that I want to be helpful. So now I have to wrestle with my shame about actually, you know, being kind of patronizing instead of actually being empowering. Ooh, that gets hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard to sit with that as a, as a leader, as a manager. It can really challenge those times where people say, that's just who I am. That's the way I am. Mm -hmm. And it can... It can be difficult to challenge that. I think it can really open up an opportunity to expand that and not just rely on this old idea of, well, that's just who I am. But the idea of that's who I've been, let me mm -hmm. take a look at that and see if it still lines up with what's important to me. So it can actually open up something that you might've thought was completely closed off. And rather than take what can sometimes be an easy way out, an easy way not to make changes and say, okay, you know what? I can make changes. I don't have to just say, well, that's just me but say, that's who I've been. Is that who I want to be? Agreed. I once had a coach tell me when, when I pulled that, <laughs> when I was like, well, that's just not, 
that's just not me. And it's just, you know, this is who I am. I, I think I use those exact words. And I think that what the coach told me was you don't have to change who you are. You know, authenticity is, is one of your core values. And it is, it is one of my core values. And she recognized that. And she said, you know, add to who you are. You, one of your core values is also learning and, and expansion. Right. So, so you can be who you are and have that not be fixed um, and have that constantly be expanding and have these skills added to your skill set rather than replacing. And I thought that was a nice frame. I'm sharing that not just to, to show you, you know, a, a, an insight that I had, but also to say for, for coaches, leaders who are trying this out, like, you know, some of this coaching skill that MBS writes about has to do with helping people sit with the both and, and, and not having them choose or not having them get into black and white thinking, but be expansive. You know, that's what all these questions are getting at these big, like what questions, as, as he says, these open questions are about like, Hey, what if it wasn't just a or B, but like, what else could be going on here? Right. Or, or what are we not thinking of? Um, and in that way, coaching isn't, is an expansive skill and it's, and it's, you know, not about limiting to one right answer as such. There's so much about just growing range and flexibility that is really powerful, uh, and curiosity about this person that I'm in process of being, being able to get to that transformation from the fact that there's past me, present me, future me, which is language that. MBS uses, but it's also a language I've seen in other places. And I find it really, really powerful because I can have conversations with myself and I can say, okay, past me used to do it this way. Future me would like to do it that way. What can present me do to make it more likely that future me gets what they want? Uh, and so, sometimes I reinforce that by, if I do a hard thing to set things up for an easier moment later, uh, and I get to the later moment and I realize, oh, I did the prep work for this already. I actually reinforce it by saying, okay, well done past me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pat on the back. Yeah. Pat on the back. Well done past. Because it really is about growth. It's not about changing fundamental aspects of who we are. If we were still as unskilled as adults, as we were as kindergartners, we would not be impressed with ourselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's true. And I think that highlights the difference too, between coaching for performance versus coaching for development, because I think managers, leaders who are relatively newer to coaching, I think there's this conflation of that word too, with getting someone to higher levels of performance in their role right now, which I understand is, is a goal that <laughs> in the corporate setting people have, right? I mean, I think higher performance is, is, is certainly a goal, but it's a limiting goal in this sense. And it's almost a fallacy. This is my opinion. I don't know that it's MBS's opinion, but it's almost a fallacy to use the word coaching in that context, because you're not really coaching the person you're coaching towards like a, let's get you to this performance rating. Right. Whereas I think true coaching for development has to do with, as you've been saying, Kate and Melissa, expanding that person's horizons and empowering the way they think to be able to do things differently versus, you know, meeting some arbitrary target. And so I would just caution that I think for those who are maybe hearing the word coaching at work, in particular from HR business partners or from other sources, 
it's not always the skill that we're referring to in these books, like true developmental coaching isn't like I'm here to give you feedback so that you improve your work performance. It's a totally different thing, actually. Yeah, I would love to see that language change. I think that it is actually language that makes it harder for developmental coaching to be really deeply rooted in HR practices. And so I would love to see the idea that it's all coaching. When we think about coaching as helping the client achieve their goals, the client has a couple of goals. And if you think about it in a corporate setting and you think about an employee's goals, the employee has a couple of goals. One is to make sure that I'm doing this job well enough that I am not at risk around having this job or not having this job. <laughs> and then, and so that's the sort of classic HR performance coaching model of like, you're underperforming and we need to get you up yeah. to performing. Um, and that's like, if, if I'm underperforming, I absolutely want to know how to get up <laughs> to not underperforming. Like that's, it's a baseline. And I might not actually want to get developmental coaching. I might actually want to come to work and do my job and go home at the end of the day and have other things be my priority. And I might actually not want to be moving up the career ladder. And it might actually feel like I might look at the next step of my career path that I appear to be on and go, that looks like more work than I want. And it looks like more than mm -hmm. I can handle. So I want to stop here. And that's totally valid. And in fact, those kind of people are really useful in organizations because they create stability. Right. And lots of people want growth, uh, especially if growth comes with more money because lots of, you know, there, and so that, and for that, the developmental coaching is really powerful because it's like okay that next level up is actually going to ask different things of you so how does present you become future you if you want future you to be capable of doing that role so there's my soapbox <laughs> <laughs> i'll step off it now so two books if people only read one which do they read so you had sent this question ahead of time and i will say i went back and forth and back and forth i thought i had an answer <laughs> And then it changed and then it changed back. So I think I'm going to give that annoying answer of it depends. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, yeah. there's, there's yeah. so <laughs> just to be clear, that's also my answer. I'd like us to unpack. <laughs> it depends. What does it depend on? So he says that the advice trap picks up where the coaching habit leads off. And there's a lot more in the advice trap that kind of sandwiches around this idea of the coaching habit. So I like the advice trap with that overarching idea of why we're so pulled to give advice and, and making the case for giving less advice. However, I think if really pushed to say, which one would I recommend first? I think it goes back to our conversation about how the coaching habit makes something that might seem less tangible, really tangible and gives someone a script and a map 
to just start trying these skills and then moving on to the advice trap, which, which also there was a, there was a section we didn't talk about in terms of the, what he calls the fogifiers, looking at traps we can, as coaches, we can fall into. And I, again, I think if someone is brand new to this idea, giving them the coaching habit that says, here's seven questions, try putting these into your conversations. I think there's a lot of people that I would recommend the coaching habit to first people that want a little bit more of a, of a 10,000 foot view and who just might even first need to get comfortable with the idea of not giving advice. Those are the folks I would send to the advice trap first. So how's that for a (laughs) non-answer? I think it's a great actual answer. (laughs) What about you? Well, I may have given myself away earlier when I voted for the advice trap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will say that, you know, I think one way to think about the coaching habit is there's a lot of what to do in that book. And I think the advice trap has a lot of what not to do. It's oversimplistic, but I think that's one way to think about the relationship between the two books. Um, And the, the reason I I personally think the advice trap is is more useful. Although um, you are right, Alyssa, that that the the co- the questions laid out in the coaching habit are um, really useful, is I think because um, you know there may be folks out there who may not really find themselves directly in a coaching situation, right? Who who either because they don't lead teams or they're not really in that capacity. I think with the advice trap, there's a way of saying, well here's at least what, you know, avoid doing this so you can be a little bit more useful, even in just regular conversations or in meetings, right? Even if you're, you're not really at all coaching, um, at least, you know, cultivate humility and, um, you know, don't, don't ask questions and then follow up with answering them yourselves, right? And don't interrupt people and don't, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff, as you said, we didn't really get to talking about, you know, ask simple, straightforward questions, things like that, that I think are applicable to, to, many, many, many uh, professional situations. Yeah. You know, I think that some of the differences between the books that we didn't talk about and some of the nuances about what the books are, are really, really relevant to this question. And so I'm happy to like, let this be a place to like go and dive in a little bit more into some of the distinctions between the books. The coaching habit, for instance, has this really solid structure throughout about what does it take to build a habit and the whole structure that is carried out throughout the whole book is um, here's a question to ask, uh, here's where it falls in a coaching conversation, here's why this particular wording is powerful and why you shouldn't add any words to what else and why you shouldn't do it. And then there's a little section on he calls them, I think, coaching masterclasses that are sort of how you show up as a person in this conversation while you ask these questions. And then there's the, so imagine a setting and how you might practice it and like, what would be the trigger? And so modeling in that example, how would you build a habit and instructions on how you could practice that is not in the advice trap at all. And so if there's somebody who is struggling with building habits and is struggling with figuring out how to 
actually practice these skills, it's a really useful model. Uh, the advice trap has this whole section on how do you notice what happens, what goes on that pushes you into the traps? Like what is the source, the thing that's happening that makes this advice monster come up? Like at sort of some prompts for what are those things? And so that self-awareness piece, if somebody is ready for that self-awareness piece, I would absolutely put them to the advice trap. Agreed. Sorry, I was going to say that when you mentioned the, the habit forming a portion of the coaching habit, very aptly named, he references um, two really great books, The Power of Habit, and um, there's another one, oh, Atomic Habits both of which are, are also really, really great. So I just wanted to throw that in as like also other great, just general habit forming um, literature. Yeah. yeah. I think that the title of the advice trap might be challenging for some people because um, it starts with be humble, stay curious. And the idea that we might need to knock our egos down a little bit to be more effective, uh, we have to be ready for that. <laughs> and, and if we're not ready for that, the subtitle of the coaching habit, which is very straightforward, talk less, sorry, yeah, talk less, ask more. That's much more, <laughs> it's not challenging to the ego in the same way. It looks more like easy change. Mm. And I think that be humble calls out, oh, this might actually be hard change. Should we move to thinkaways? What do you think? Yeah. Okay. So my thinkaway is whether you're looking at the coaching habit or the advice trap, that idea of asking more questions and specifically take a look at when you are really trying to ask more questions and when you listen really carefully, are you actually giving advice with a question mark attached? I think that can be a real eye-opener for people. As you're trying to build this habit and you're trying to ask more questions, just keep an eye on when you might be actually giving advice with a question mark attached. Oh my God. Can I please share an example of this? I was in a work setting in which someone was doing team coaching and they were tech asking questions, but uh, I heard questions of the likes of, have you considered talking to that other team about this issue? You know, it's like, that's exactly what you're saying, Alyssa. It is, have you considered doing this thing that I'm currently giving you advice on? Question mark. Yeah. There's a difference between what have you thought of? Right. And have thought of. <laughs> Big difference. Yeah. Oh, I had one the other day. I asked a really solid what question and, a, and it, it was a, was a what open-ended question and I could feel in the back of my head and the right answer is, and I was like, oh, <laughs> step back. <laughs> I mean, I think that sort of takes me to where my think away is. Just an invitation to get curious about the difference between the desire to be helpful and what would actually be helpful right now. Love that. My think away is kind of in the realm of good to great. So this is maybe a little bit more applicable to, to folks listening who have done a, at least a little bit of coaching or, or tried it in their roles. And it comes from the advice trap and it has to do with, it really has to do with keeping it simple, which is to say, ask a question, a simple one, and then stop talking. 
<laughs> actually listen to the answer, actually acknowledge the answer. And I, I love this as a think away because very often once someone has tried a little bit of coaching and then sort of consider themselves a coach, you know, you can start to fall in love with your own insights and, and frankly, the sound of your own voice. <laughs> And you start thinking sort of five to 10 minutes ahead of like, what great insights are we going to get to? And it can start to feel like this, this exercise, like you almost get too comfortable in it and it it becomes too conversationally. Whereas I think what you actually have to do is give the other person space to talk and let them know that you hear them talking. I mean, it seems so simple, but it's really, really, really hard to do to ask a question and then stop and not sort of engage in the like, and here's what I mean by that. And here's why I'm asking. And, you know, tell me what you think, (laughs) but just put it out there and stop. By the way, that's true. Even if it wasn't a particularly path-breaking question, it's still better if you stop talking and give the other person space to be, right? Like it it could be a a question as simple as what else, or what do you think might be behind that? And it's just always better to stop instead of qualifying that question. And, and I just love that as a takeaway. Yeah. You're pointing at something that I think is underneath all of this and is hidden in both of these books, hidden on the surface. (laughs) But it's easy to miss because there's so much other stuff that's easier to grasp onto. But you pointed to it earlier, the idea that a lot of this is becoming at ease, not trying to change discomfort places and that place of becoming comfortable with silence so that somebody else can do their processing and so that somebody else can answer the question. And one of the things that this piece about feeling comfortable hearing the sound of your own voice reminded me of is each of these challenges that people face that coaching might be useful for if they were easy it wouldn't be a challenge anymore like it already would be solved if it was easy yep and so if it starts feeling comfortable like maybe it's actually not being as effective because maybe it's not actually going to the place where the stuck is really stuck and so the final irony is that we leave a conversation about a book about not giving advice (laughs) By giving three pieces of advice. And he says that in the book as well. He does point that out. Yeah. And that's the dance. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.